All right. Well, let's pray. I'm glad you folks are here, and we'll redeem the time, as the Scripture tells us. Father, thank you that uh, we can gather and uh, study the confession, important matters summarized from the Scriptures here for us. Help us as we reflect on them to grow spiritually and uh, grow in our understanding. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 25 of the church. So in the hymnal, that's on page 862, no, 863. Nothing divides the church like the subject of the unity of the church. (laughs) Kind of a paradox, but here we are. And uh, let me go ahead. It's, uh, I think, five, no, six paragraphs, maybe, in length. Important distinctions are made that hopefully will be helpful to you. So the first paragraph reads, The Catholic or Universal Church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be, gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay. The next cha- next uh, paragraph I think is worth reading because of its uh, similarity, but also its distinction or its contrast. To the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children, and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Okay, let's take a look at the first one here. I think the big and the obvious distinction is between uh, invisible and visible. Invisible and visible. So the thing to remember when we talk about the invisible church is that it's invisible to you and me. It's not invisible to God. That's an important thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is because it's visible to God and God transcends time and space, he sees it all at once as a complete uh, and final work that he has accomplished. So it's not as though God is like hopeful, wishing, wondering, <laughs> was this all going to work out? <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, we've talked about this a few times. It's hard for us to understand it. In fact, it's impossible for us to, to comprehend it. But when we speak of the transcendence of God, we're speaking not just simply in terms of a spatial relationship. It's not like God is up on Venus or something, you know, somewhere out there. Like we look through a telescope and we say, there's heaven. You know, we're talking about uh, transcendence in the sense that the created order uh, is uh, something that God does not uh, inhabit in the sense that you and I inhabit it, uh, but transcends it, stands outside it. It's his creation. Um, He dwells in heaven and the question then is, is what do we mean by that? You know, if you recall Paul's reference to the third heaven, uh, 
there are levels to heaven. So there's a first and a second and a third. So first is what is visible in the daytime when you look up and you see the sky and the clouds and all of that. The next level is what we see at night with the stars, starry host, so forth. And then the third heaven is beyond that. So it doesn't matter how fast you get, you know, your rocket ship goes. You just never arrive. <laughs> you don't get there from here. It's like, it's like you know, in down East Maine, you, you don't, you're not from New England, so you don't you get the joke. But in down East Maine, we, you know, we have our own hillbillies in Maine, kind of the ornery, kind of redneck community. And they're, we call them maniacs. They're from Maine. And they're about as hillbilly as anybody from the Ozarks or West Virginia. And it, the joke is, is, if you stop and ask for directions for one of them, they'll say, well, if you go down here, well, no, no, if you go over here, no, you just can't get there from here. <laughs> you just can't get there from here. It's, it's that, that's what we mean by transcendence. So spatial categories, temporal categories, time, space. This is another marvelous thing, and I've mentioned this before. Augustine knew that time and space are related before Einstein did. So you're familiar with you know, Einstein's theories and so forth and sort of the mind-boggling character of you know, sort of the elasticity of time. In other words, if you go really, really fast, things move slower. I don't know if you've heard that. You've seen it in science fiction films. It's actually been proven empirically. Atomic clock on Earth, atomic clock in space, set at the same time, the one in space moved slower because of the speed with which, now we're talking about infinitesimally slower. <laughs> we're not talking about like something you and I would notice, uh, but it's turned out to be the case. This is the way the world works and it makes tons of sense. So God is not subject to time. He doesn't like look down the corridor of time to see what's coming. God stands outside of time and space. And so from God's perspective, it's done. It's already accomplished. That's why he can speak so, so clearly to us and assure us this is the way it ends. This, you know, it's, it's a done deal. We're still in the middle of it, in the fog of war, so to speak. We're not standing on the mountain, looking down on the valley, seeing how the battle is unfolding. We're like in the trenches and there's some Hun that's like charging right at you. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, <laughs> are we going to win? Well, from your perspective, my perspective, things can be dis disconcerting, seem to be in doubt, but from God's perspective, they're not. So the invisible church is the church that God sees, but you and I can't. But there is a visible expression of the church, and that's what the second uh, statement gets into. But let's take a look, though, at uh, this first one in more depth, I've already elaborated upon it a little bit, but Catholic Universal, it's basically two ways of saying the same thing. So I know that oftentimes in contemporary speech, when we hear the word Catholic, we think of the Pope and we think of Rome and so forth, but um, that's uh, not the appropriate way to think about it. This brings up a, a, the subject, you know, when somebody misuses a word, does that mean you stop using it? If you do, then pretty much your language is going to be gutted before you know it. People use the word love for all kinds of stuff, right? Just because they misuse it, does that mean we stop? Presbyterian, 
<laughs> there are a lot of people who associate that with a bunch of folks we don't want to associate with. <laughs> you know, is, that, is it wrong for us to keep using the word? Of course not, because it's a biblical word, presbytos. It's uh, from scripture, it's Greek. So, you know, we can't allow all of our best words to be stolen. We have to reclaim them. And Catholic, so Eastern Orthodox people believe in the Catholicity of the church. Uh, Protestants believe in the Catholicity of the church. Uh, it's the Roman Catholic church that wants to lay claim on that's our word, but uh, we disagree. So, um, so this invisible consists of the whole number of the elect. Elect meaning God is the one who does the electing that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. So shall be can mean people who are alive now, right? Who haven't entered the church, haven't come to faith, but it also means your great grandchildren. That's the weird thing. That's the thing that really can, like, it's mind boggling. But that's what happens. Your mind is blown when you try to wrap your mind around eternity. It just doesn't fit. Your mind is blown. <laughs> you know, when, and that's why you're just like, wow. So um, I've used this um, illustration. This is just a thought experiment. So don't take this too seriously. It's just a what if. What if you die and go to heaven and meet your great, great, great grandchildren? You're in eternity. There's no waiting there, in other words. It's not like, well, when are they going to get here? <laughs> no, you're in the presence of God, and it's the, the moment. So the, when we think about God's relationship to time, the persons of the Trinity that relate to time are which persons? Second and the third persons, right? The Son and the Spirit. So the Son enters into time, is the one through whom all things came into being, is the intercessor, the one who connects us to the Father. The Spirit is the one who connects us to the, to the Son and to the Father, is at work right now, hopefully in this room at this minute, doing what only the Spirit can do, you know, in time. Uh, but the Father transcends. It's really important to keep in mind. Um, so under Christ, the head thereof, so Christ is the head of the church, and then we have these terms that relate to the church and help us to see the connection of the church to the head. There's the spouse, meaning the bride. There's the body. Uh, there's the fullness of him that filleth all in all, meaning that in the church there should be some uh, a, a realization of God's uh, uh, work in us and Christ's headship in the church. Any thoughts or questions about any of those things? I agree. So Molly says the world opens up when you believe in God, and that's exactly right. So let's take a look at the next one here, the visible church. Now, this is where things get a little more challenging. And the rest of the time, uh, the rest of the paragraphs will get into some matters that are really 
things that puzzle us as Christians. So the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law. So this is a different use of the term Catholic. So the Catholic, Catholicity of the, the visible church is an, is an, as, as an assertion that uh, the church isn't limited to a nation, particular geography. This is something that transcends all of those uh, important but finite distinctions that separate groups of people. Um, and consists of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion. There's a term you don't hear much more anymore, the true religion. Uh, I think a lot of people are shy about using that term because they don't want to come across as like uh, bigoted or overconfident <laughs> or that kind of thing. But I think it's a, it's a fine term, it's a good term, and we, I think we need it back. What it, what it implies is that some, some religions can get things wrong, right? The true religion means that religion is something that can be right or wrong. So um, then the, the next clause is, and their children. Again, there are some, there are some uh, uh, branches, of particularly the Protestant world, that uh, are really uh, equivocate over that. And they have a hard time reconciling themselves to it, but also at the same time re rejecting it, if you get my drift. So, um, like, if, let's just pick on our Baptist friends, because those are the folks who first come to mind. So, uh, if you talk to you know, a, you know, the head of house of a Baptist family, and you ask them, is your household a Christian household? They'll say, yeah, 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 definitely, yeah, yeah. And then, you'll, and then you ask, are your children Christians? No, no. <laughs> they haven't walked up to the altar yet. They haven't gotten to the age of accountability yet, and so on and so forth. Now, beneath this uh, reservation, I think is an important uh, concern, and that is that everybody should exercise faith for themselves, right? This is that, and that's I think the thing that you know they're trying to preserve. They're also trying to make sure that we don't uh, make some of the mistakes of say um, state churches in the past, where you saw uh, people who were baptized into the church. Uh, simply because they were members of the nation and not uh, actually practicing in any respect the Christian faith as a household. So, you know, these are concerns that the, I think are legitimate concerns. Nevertheless, your kids are different, and, and even Baptists acknowledge that. <laughs> even Baptists will say, well, we're not going to do the baptism thing, but we're going to do something that's not in the Bible, but it's close. And what is that? Yeah, dedicate, dedicate my child. So, you know, it's fine. You know, it's not like that's a terrible thing or anything like that. But, but you know, if this is often a fun thing to do if, if a Baptist says, well, you know, there's no explicit verse for baptizing your children in the Bible. You know, though, you know when we talk about household convert, you know, the, you know, the entire household was, you know, converted, baptized, whatever. We don't know if that was 
really the case with babies? And then you say, well, give me your proof text for dedicating babies. Crickets. <laughs> so, okay, you're doing something that the scriptures don't say to do. Not, I'm not saying that's bad, but, you know, let's play fair. If you're going to play that game of explicit proof text, let's play it all the way. Anyway, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Brittany. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that they're torn. Again, I think they have a concern that's a legitimate concern. And they're trying to make, it, make sense of it. One of the things that happens is, you know, they'll say something along the lines of uh, kind of implying that they only want their church to consist of tr the truly elect. Uh, and so they're going to wait, you know, to somebody makes a, you know, profession of faith before the person is baptized. And then that person three years later is completely given over to the world. <laughs> okay. You know, so you can't trust the person's profession either. So are we just going to not baptize anybody? I'm having some fun here with this as I play out the implications of some of the logic. Um, but, you know, we see all kinds of apostate people who, you know, claim, you know, this is one of the fun things that you learn as a pastor is that there are lots of people when they go to the hospital and they're asked, what's your church, what's your religion? They'll name something. And then you get a call from the hospital saying, we've got one of your members here, and they tell you who it is. They're like, who is that? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then you discover they went to vacation Bible school three times as a kid. <laughs> you know, their grandma, you know, sent them, you know, that kind of thing. And you're like, that's not how it works, bud. <laughs> anyway, any thoughts about this? Yeah, those sins have got sharp teeth. They hurt. Yeah, Mark. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it parallels the logic that we saw in the early church with kind of a, um, the conviction that um, anyone who had sinned should not receive the Lord's Supper. So you had uh, this tendency in the early church of holding off on baptism until like a deathbed. <laughs> I'm, there, there are, you know, accounts of this where people are saying, I don't want to like you know, get baptized and then sin, and then my whole, you know, assurance or my understanding of the, the faith leads me to believe that I'm lost at that point because I sinned after I was baptized. Um, there's, there's this desire for a pure church in the world, uh, which is a, a great thing to want, right? Problem is, is that, um, People fail. 
and repeatedly. So how do we how do we think about sin in believers? How do we address that with regard to say church membership? Um, what we're talking about with the visible church is the church that we can see. Like I'm looking out right now and I see the visible church. I can't see the invisible church. Only God sees that. Now, if I presume to have God's insight and only baptize the people that I think are elect, I'm guilty of what? Just what I said, presumption. I don't know. And we, we do the best we can with the evidence we have on hand. And uh, one of the things that we, we know is that children who are, you know, part of a family that's uh, a believing family, a covenant family, they're being raised in the faith. They're being taught. They're being disciplined. They're being encouraged to exercise faith themselves. And then later on, if it becomes evident that the child is apostate, then it's the role of the elders to discipline the child, right? You know, at a certain point when that child, particularly when that child gets to a, a stage of life where the child can be addressed and disciplined in the way we're talking about here. Sometimes it's after the child's left home. Sometimes it's still while the child is at home. But uh, what we're dealing with here is just the, just the fact that we're dealing with these children in the same way we would deal with any, like any other part of the church. If you're baptized and you fall into sin, it's the role of the elders to do their work as judges and to hold you accountable and call you to repentance and so forth. Same thing with kids. So that's, that's the distinction. Um, it's not a distinction uh, that says sin is okay. You know, any kid that's raised in the church is automatically on his way to heaven because he was baptized, that kind of thing. We're not, we're not asserting that. What we're saying is the child is a member of a household and a member of the church, the visible church, the visible household, visible church. And because that's the case, and the fact that the child is being raised in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we're working with that child, teaching, praying for, and so forth. And when you know, very often, the kid turns out to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, and it seems as though this is the way it's supposed to work. But anyway, um, in fact, that if, yeah, Tom. So we're talking about baptism, but this clause, this paragraph doesn't, doesn't suggest that baptism is the way into the church for our children. But baptism recognizes what's already the case in children of believers. Yeah. Right. Good point. Yep, David. Sure, we have. Right. So the, I think that um, what's noted is not so much that 
there's a particular ethnicity that has a special blessing. Because I think sometimes when you, people hear bloodlines, that's where their mind goes. But what we're thinking about is that the faithfulness of fathers and mothers uh, puts their children in a place where they're enjoying blessings because of their childhood in the presence of those believing parents. And it carries over, you know. Um, and likewise, uh, sin seems to, to have a similar kind of legacy. And we see this in God's blessings and cursing in the Ten Commandments. Um, so, you know, we can look at it from two perspectives. We can just say the empirical evidence demonstrates. We can say also the scriptures declare that this is the case. But they're not mutually exclusive things at all. Oh, I think that, yeah, again, getting back to sort of the empirical evidence, we can see that this is this case. And you make an important point. I mean, there is, um, there is a sense in which, uh, you know, we can see uh, reprobate children coming out of Christian homes. We can also see children who are morally upright, who are coming out of very bad situations. Um, and in the grace of God, uh, you know, we don't have an ability to make guarantees. We believe the promises that were given, but we can't um, provide the kind of, I guess, airtight guarantees that certain things are going to work out. Because in God's providence, God is free to do things that we don't. I, I came across this. In fact, I was reading um, reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday, of all things, and there's a, a review of a book treating the debates between uh, Bohr and Einstein about um, quantum mechanics. And you might be familiar with Einstein's statement, God doesn't play dice, right? Because there seemed to be a lot of uncertainty in the you know, subatomic, you know, the particles and stuff like that. And Bohr said, stop telling God what to do. <laughs> In other words, you know, God can surprise us. God can do things that, you know, our reason is a very feeble copy of God's reason. God says, my thoughts are, you know, higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. God knows we look through a glass darkly, right? Um, there's always a measure of uncertainty in everything, including things that we think we know completely. Yeah, one of the fun things about this whole telescope phenomenon that we just saw recently is just all these scientists said, whoops, all those textbooks we just, uh, you know, had were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
you know, the Deep Space Telescope, what's it, uh, Webb, the Webb Telescope, discovered that uh, the edge of the universe wasn't the edge of the universe. And it, it's even bigger than we thought. It just keeps going. So they, they had, you know, with categorical assurance told us this is the limit. It turned out that the limit was as far as we could see and we assumed there was nothing beyond it. There you go. We were wrong. <laughs> so anytime, anyway, anyway, so when it comes to human knowledge, there's always a sense in which we are approximate. We, we, get, we, we try to get as close as we can. And then, you know, this is, this is where, one of the things that fascinated me when I think about the Garden of Eden is there are two trees, knowledge and life. Knowledge and life. Now I know it says knowledge of good and evil, but let's just say knowledge. So knowledge puffs up, love builds up, right? There's a tendency with knowledge to become full of yourself, overly confident. What's, what's the name of that, that uh, phenomenon when people who know a little bit are just full of confidence and then the more they know, the humbler they get? There's a name for this, I can't remember what it is. Yeah. What's a Kruger, the Kruger effect, that's right. Yeah, don't like the Kruger effect. So the Kruger effect is the more you learn, the humbler you get. You know you're dealing with minor league people when they're really, really super competent. <laughs> you know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know, right? Anyway. Um, but the Lord knows everything. He's got absolute definitive knowledge of everything. The Webb telescope discovers something God knew all along. Um, now, what we have too in this in this statement is, is an interesting uh, clause at the very end that maybe you've not heard before, maybe you've only heard it in relationship to the Roman Catholic Church, and that is uh, concerning the church of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. You've heard the term "no salvation outside the church." Is that a familiar term? phrase. Uh, now, there are a couple ways to think about it, or at least a couple. You know, one way is it's just a fact. In other words, if we're talking about the invisible church, then you're in it, and there's no salvation outside it. It's categorically true. It's like saying all bachelors are unmarried men. It's just categorically true, right? There's no, like, empirical evidence that we need to gather to discover if this is so. So if you're in the church, the invisible church, you are saved. If you're not in the invisible church, you're not. But this is a statement related to the visible church. Notice here, that's what this paragraph is addressing. So outside of the visible church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, the word ordinary leaves a, an opening for what? Extraordinary. <laughs> there are things that can be done. God can do things, right? God can save people uh, and surprise you. You know, like, how did you become a Christian? You know, then you hear this amazing story about how it happened. But what is being stated here is that in terms of the means of grace, in other words, preaching, witnessing the fellowship of the church, the sacraments, these ordinary means of grace are the things that God uses to save us, 
So we hear the gospel, you know, because we hear it preached. And where do we hear it preached? Very often we hear it in church. But even if you don't hear it in a church building, there's still the fact that the church has been involved in getting the message out. So let's say you get a tract. Or let's say you hear the Billy, you know, Billy Graham on television or something like that. That's still in, in a very real way connected to the church, right? Church is funding it often. Church is supporting it, praying for it, printing it, what have you. I remember one time uh, I, I, in, a, in a Sunday school class, maybe I mentioned this before, I asked the question, this is one of those rhetorical questions, where do we get our Bible? And a woman in the class said, at the store. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I meant before that. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about like apostles and prophets writing things down and then other people copying those things and preserving them and handing them down and translating them for us. And, and who were all those people? They were part of the visible church. So we owe a debt. Even, even the person who's like, I don't need to go to church. I've got my sanctuary right out here in the backyard. Right? Just worshiping the Lord in nature. Open my Bible with my cup of coffee. You know, read the Word of God. Just me. Don't have to put up with any of that nonsense with all those hypocrites. <laughs> right? And then you're like, well, where'd you get the Bible, dude? At the store. <laughs> See? Yeah, these, these things are the things that help us to understand the nature of the, of the church. So house and family of God, as you said, um, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are uh, realities that exist in such a way as to be fruitful and bring people more, you know, we see more, more um, people born into the kingdom through the work of the church. But like I said, that doesn't mean that there isn't some uh, extraordinary conditions under which a conversion can happen. Yep, David. Well, that was certainly extraordinary. <laughs> That's right. No, well, he was, he was a part of the visible church in the sense that he, was, he belonged to Israel. But he was not part of the visible church in the sense that, you know, the church is confessing Christ. So that's definitely a big distinction. But, but what's that? Right, right. No, no. So what you're, what you're having, you know, at that point is the, you know, go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. It's a, it's a, it's a, so it's just a, like a, not an instant kind of thing. You know, there's a process by which the church is you know calling forth or calling out of uh, you know the Jewish community those who are elect to believe in Christ. So it didn't you know? But what you have in terms of the visible at that point, in terms of visible Israel, that was already under judgment, and eventually you know is judged. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, 
that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm good with it. <laughs> Getting back to my earlier point about looking through a glass darkly, there are certain things that, you know, I, I can't say, state categorically, but there is a reality that we can, can kind of note and say, yes, there's this transition that's going on. Yeah. Talking about Christ uh, essentially proclaiming the scriptures, where the scriptures, the scriptures that he used as his testimony. Yeah. Where the scriptures. Right. Not one jot or tittle was going to pass away right. from them. And then that had come about, as you just said, through the doctrine of the Old Testament church, despite all of their sin, all their rebellion, all yeah. their Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, when you think about the tendency that a lot of people have to try to demarcate the Old Testament church and the New Testament church in an unbiblical manner. Um, I think that's, you know, uh, troubling. So, you know, like for example, we have Andy Stanley lately. I don't know if you're familiar with Andy Stanley, Stanley's latest heretical, you know. Do you guys know who Andy Stanley is? Some of you are shaking your heads yes, some of them are say, saying no. I'm not trying to get you to, to, to be super interested in the guy, but he's Charles Stanley's son. Maybe you remember Charles Stanley, big, uh, important Baptist preacher in Atlanta. But anyway, his son, more or less, has just thrown out the entire Old Testament, condemned it. And you're like, there's a heresy that's got a name. It's called Marcionism. That's, <laughs> you're a Marcionite. That's what you are. We condemn that like, you know, like in the second or third century. And you're trying to revive it. Now, why do you think he's up to that? He just doesn't like certain things in the Old Testament. <laughs> kind of, you know, Levitical rules about homosexuals and stuff like that. It's just not cool. You know, it doesn't go well with coffee in Sunday morning service. As you heard of John Piper <laughs> this past week on coffee sipping worshipers. <laughs> anyway, having a little fun. But uh, not that any of you were drinking coffee right now. <laughs> Yep, David. We're going to get to that in paragraph four. Paragraph four is dedicated to that very matter. <laughs> so anyway, but let's go through paragraph three first. So unto this Catholic visible church, Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world 
and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Um, so the things that we um, have been entrusted with have been handed down to us, and those are the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God. And these, these things we've been entrusted with uh, are for the purpose of gathering and perfecting the saints in this life. So gathering would be evangelism, right? Uh, and, and then perfecting would be sanctification. You know, God's work in our lives so that we grow in grace. And this is to go on to the end of the world. This is just something that is the case for the foreseeable, literally foreseeable, what we can see future. But it's important to note that it's by his presence, it's through the Spirit, according to his promises, that they work. Um, what's that uh, hymn, I Know Not How, what is it, How the Spirit Moves, Convicting Men of Sin? What's the, what's the name of that hymn? What's that? I, that's it, yep. I know whom I believe it. And, and that's what you know, is being stated there is that God's work mysteriously through these ordinances uh, and oracles, in other words, his, his word, his, the sacraments, God is working mysteriously. And oftentimes the, the preacher doesn't know what's going on. I think I've mentioned this many times that there have been Sundays where I've gotten done and I thought, man, that was just awful. Even within the last few months, I was like, that was just terrible. And no one noticed. <laughs> In fact, sometimes people come and say, oh, that was really good. And I was like, really? Uh, okay. Well, it's because it's not me. It's God working through his word and doing something in your life. There have been other times where I'm like patting myself on the back. That was the greatest sermon ever, Wiley. And like nobody has like been helped <laughs> or anything. You know? So you can't, you just don't know. You just don't know. Well, let's move on to the next one because this is a, this, yeah, yeah, Christopher. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's older than the Federal Vision. It goes back to many, you know, historic 
manifestations of Christianity, you know, particularly when we think about, say, the medieval church. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And this is really an important point. I think that even within Presbyterianism, um, you can, or maybe Reformed theology, generally speaking, you can find more of the first. Uh, these are the people who I was making fun of a little while ago with the coffee in the backyard, you know, and I've got them in my family, you know. Uh, you probably know some um, who really do stand in judgment over the church, and there is a, um, a kind of scrutiny that is just merciless that sometimes these people can uh, exercise with everything except themselves. It's just amazing. <laughs> they, they lack self-awareness to such a degree that um, yeah, they may give lip service to, oh yeah, I'm not perfect, that kind of thing. Uh, or I might have something wrong. Uh, but when it comes to the church, the visible church, they have no sympathy, no tolerance, no capacity for a little bit of fallibility. I don't know. Yep, David. Was it was it Wigglesworth that people they, at the end of his life he occupied a church of one? himself. <laughs> I think it was him. But yeah, I mean, that, that's the kind of the mistake you can, you can fall into. And this gets us to the next paragraph, I think, pretty, uh, uh, I think, well. Um, here we see, um, this Catholic Church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel, uh, as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely in them. And this takes us to the next paragraph. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to, a, to mixture and error. That's an important caveat. So, and then it, it but it, goes on to say, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So this is the, this is the thing. You know, like when we look at, say, uh, fellow believers from other theological traditions or denominations, um, we can still acknowledge their fidelity to Christ while being in disagreement about important matters. So let's think about, you know, a famous relationship in the history of the evangelical world, George Whitfield and John Wesley, right? So here are a couple of guys who disagree very strongly about the nature of uh, the effective sort of calling of the spirit. Um, and predestination and so forth. So John, John Wesley 
was friends with Whitfield in school. They both went to Oxford, formed a little club called the Holy Club. I would never presume to call club the Holy Club. But anyway, uh, and the term Methodist was developed kind of derisively for them both. So in, in, in you know, the United Kingdom, there are Calvinistic Methodists. I don't know if you realize that, but there are. They tended to be in the in sort of in Wales, in that part of the uh, United Kingdom. But, uh, and they, they would debate each other, disagree with each other in public. I mean, Wesley founded a, a magazine called The Arminian, you know, to refute the, you know, you know, reform doctrines. At the same time, he borrowed pretty liberally uh, when it came to certain reform doctrines. He was, he was sort of a, a guy who was uh, kind of eclectic. So I studied Wesley for a long time. I've got, I know a lot about the guy. But he was very eclectic. He's like, I like a little bit of this. He was kind of like a salad bar guy. You know, take a little bit of that, throw on some of this. You know, we'll take some of this Eastern Orthodoxy. We'll throw in some Moravian. We'll throw in some Luther. We'll throw in some even Calvin. And, you know, and you end up with this amalgamation called Wesleyan theology, which it really is. Uh, that's why there are so few great Wesleyan theologians. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but this relationship between the two guys was tense. Uh, but um, they both acknowledged that the other person was a genuine believer and God was using the person. And I, I can't remember if it was Wesley about Whitfield or Whitfield about Wesley after one had died. And they asked, was it? Whitfield died first. So they asked Wesley, do you expect to see Whitfield in heaven? And he said, no, he'll be so close to the throne, I'll be so far away that I won't be able to see him. <laughs> in other words, he was saying he was a genuine believer, even though we disagreed on a, some pretty important matters. So then the question is, how do you, where do you draw the line? Because there is a point where you become a synagogue of Satan, where you've gone over to the other team. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there are those uh, lines in the sand, straw that hits the camel's back moments, you know, where you say, I just can't continue here any longer. So for me, you know, I left a Wesleyan denomination, and I actually uh, wrote an article that was published this week about, about the whole thing. And because I was an elder, and could kind of see where things were going, I had a sense of where things would end up far before any other folks would. I mean, today, right now in the Church of Nazarene, um, it's a live issue whether or not they're going to uh, solemnize gay marriages, stuff like that. So, you know, it's, but I saw it coming in the late, you know, 1990s, because I was connected with uh, people at the, very highest levels of the denomination. In fact, the guy who was the pastor of the mother church, Los Angeles First Church, recruited me to come on to his staff. So we were friends. He went on to become the president of the seminary and completely liberalized it. And I could have told them that he was going to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, 
during Pride Month, they had statements from my alma mater supporting it. So I could see it coming. I said, I got to get out. And so I, you know, did the things I needed to do to get out. And I said to myself, now that doesn't mean that everybody who attends the Nazarene church is happy about all that. So there are a lot who are angry and are fighting against it. But the problem is that they're fighting against the entrenched uh, bureaucracy and the intelligentsia of the church. So that can happen um, in lots of good denominations. Now, it doesn't mean that things can't be turned around. We're, I think we're seeing a turnaround in the CRC, Christian Reformed Church, right now. There's some signs of life there that are encouraging. Uh, some things that are going on in Lutheranism that are encouraging. Um, so you might think that the story is over when it's not. Other thoughts? Yeah, David. Well, I mean, in, you know, if we take a look at the United Church of Christ, which is the Congregationalists in New England, I mean, that's the denomination that Jonathan Edwards was part of. And so there was, uh, you know, a point in history where biblical orthodoxy and evangelical ministry was strong. Today, the joke is UCC stands for Unitarians Considering Christ. You know, it's that bad. Um, and I still have people I know in that world, but most of the Orthodox congregational churches have broken away. Anyway, so, uh, you know, in fact, if you go to Jonathan Edwards' old churches, the two of them, one in Enfield and up in Northampton, they both got rainbow flags outside. Completely different places. Yeah. Yeah. How many ways can you go wrong? A lot. <laughs> right. But I'm encouraged because I actually, you know, the wheat and the tares that grow together, there are a number of things in our time that are encouraging, that are uh, sources of great encouragement to me. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to discourage. But on the other hand, there's a lot of things that are great to see. Other thoughts? Well, we haven't gotten to um, the last, so next week uh, we'll maybe pick up with uh, paragraph five and go into six, and then we'll get into the communion of saints. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church. We're grateful, Lord. We know that uh, because it's made up of human beings who are still struggling with sin and fighting hard to overcome it, there are times when the church disappoints us. Nevertheless, you've promised to use it, work through it, to discipline it, to lead it. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help our particular church to be faithful to you and faithful in the proclamation of the gospel and in, it, in the work of the ministry. In Christ's name, amen.